You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, episode 70 with Lauren Bilor. You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, where we will explore the stories of successful Black professionals. Join us as we highlight the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished trailblazers to help provide the know-how, confidence, and motivation you need to blaze your trail. And now, here's your host, Stephen Hart. Hello, and welcome to the Trailblazers Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Hart. In today's episode, I talk with Lauren Belor. She's a young 27-year-old trailblazer that's paving a new pathway for women in Michigan in the world of politics and business. Back in 2014, Lauren was the only millennial African-American woman in Michigan that worked in the fundraising realm of politics, and she thrived. She helped raise hundreds of thousands of dollars in funding for campaign elections. Today, she's the corporate relations and events manager for the Michigan League of Conservation Voters, and she's taking her fundraising efforts to the environmental policy area of politics. Out of all 29 state leagues nationally, Lauren is the first and only African-American in this role. She's also the co-founder for a woman-owned nonprofit organization by the name of YAB, which stands for Young, Ambitious, and Beautiful. It's a young entrepreneurial conglomerate for businesses owned by women of color. So in today's interview, you know, we discuss the shifts that are happening that seem to be stifling the voice of black women in politics. We also talked about the impact that race, gender, and ethnicity might play in politics as we look out maybe a decade from now. Before we get into my conversation with Lauren, I wanted to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Boston H2014, who left us a really awesome review over on iTunes that read, one of my favorite podcasts, engaging host, great content, guests, and advice. I look forward to each week. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for the very kind comment and rating Boston H2014. Listen, guys, if you're focused on becoming a trailblazer in your home, in your work and community, then we'd like to welcome you to our trailblazer family. As a trailblazer yourself, please help us to get the word out to more future trailblazers by logging into iTunes right now and leaving a quick rating and comment for the podcast doing that helps the Trailblazer community as a whole to grow and become uh, noticed by others who want to join this movement. Just a reminder that you've got the full show notes for today's episode that's up right now. You can just click on over to tbpod.com slash episode 70. That said, let's get to receive some mission fuel from today's Trailblazer, Lauren Belor. Hope you enjoy so I'm really excited about this conversation. Lauren, welcome, and thanks for being our feature trailblazer today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. So your bio and your accomplishments kind of blow me away. For a young woman at, what, 27? You know, I'm pretty surprised right now, kind of just reading your your profile. And I'm, I would probably be surprised if you don't see it published on Forbes 30 here <laughs> before your opportunity let's, runs out. Let's speak it into existence. Amen. Stephen. Let's speak it into existence. <laughs> okay. You're blessing my life right now. <laughs> Were you always this ambitious uh, and driven as a kid? 
You know what? I feel like the humility in me would love to say <laughs> no and give you like a cliche story of how I changed a path. But no, this has really been me since 1989, straight out the womb. Um, <laughs> I kind of always had, and I think it comes from being an only child because you have a lot of time on your hands to think. And, you know, I spent a lot of time mapping out my life as far as knowing that I wanted to have a successful route, knowing that I wanted to use my voice. I didn't necessarily know what direction I wanted to utilize that voice or what community that I wanted to represent or, you know, what leadership roles I exactly wanted to take, but I knew that I wanted to take them. So there so, wasn't like a particular dream that you had, like, when I grow up, I'm going to be. Oh, well, definitely. I mean, I initially actually, and no one, I don't think anyone knows this. So you're the first <laughs> um, outside of my parents. But I actually wanted to be a fashion designer. Really? Um, I was really, really into fashion. I truly get that from my mother. Mm. But in elementary school was wearing like... Donna Karen, who was really big, what? and the <laughs> Nana Republic, and like, I mean, people wear that as an adult, but I thought you wore that as a child. So, <laughs> um, so I just, I, you know, in the sixth grade, I did my report for a Spanish class on Carolina Harar, and the teacher was like, How do you even know who this is? Because most people chose Selena, but I'm like, No, she's a Spanish descent representation in the fashion industry and she's amazing and and really should go truly noted so you know that was really my initial goal and then that eventually transitioned into wanting to be an attorney which I, I think many many young black boys and girls have that same dream right um and of course it it a lot of it comes to fruition for many of them but um, that was kind of my initial goal. You know, a lot of times you'll have, of course, certain roadmaps in the Black community of careers to take, whether that be doctor, lawyer, teacher, engineer, nurse. You know, we have like those top five careers. So politics definitely was not on the radar because the representation wasn't necessarily there unless it was to say, well, possibly run for office, which even then that came across more as a hobby than a career. So. That really wasn't necessarily able to be in the forefront for me because it wasn't necessarily encouraged, which is something I try to do every day of my career to generations coming behind me. So, mm. you know, in the in the Caribbean, <laughs> every parent wants their child to be a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> it doesn't change. We're all one and the same. <laughs> How did your family help to kind of shape you? Well, you mentioned you know, your mom a minute ago. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love my parents. Both are super ambitious individuals themselves. Mm. Um, my mother has a career in banking, business banking at that, and there's not many people of color right. um, in that particular realm. And then my father is actually an engineer. Wow. <laughs> and he also uh, was chief in the military, which is the highest ranking you can go. So they kind of set the bar pretty high. Right. <laughs> on on what I should engage in professionally as well. But I would say how they shaped me, I, I would say it's not just from a career standpoint or an ambition standpoint. It's mm -hmm. from a moral standpoint right. and a character standpoint. I think, you know, instilling in me that I should never back down to anyone 
in order to let them succeed, which that's kind of where the saying that I created came from of never do your diamonds to let rock shine. You know, my parents mm. never taught me to be second best. You know, it's like if you choose to go for something, then you're going to give it 110 percent. You're not just going to half shoot for it. And so I think instilling that at such a young age. And it's funny because I, I give this story. There's two stories, one being that when I was younger, I, I think someone must have messed with me when I was like seven <laughs> and I came home crying and, you know, most parents were like, Oh, it'll be okay. And my mom sort of course, as a, a black mother at that was like, you know, if you come home crying ever again, I'm going to whoop you. And I think it's <laughs> such an interesting story because it just, it made me granted. It seems like, wow. Okay. That's pretty tough, but it actually made me a very tough person. And right. from that day forward, I never let anyone put their hands on me or disrespect me in any kind of way. And then the other <laughs> story actually is that my parents definitely always taught me to kind of be very vocal. And, you know, I started out, it was the 90s, and I started out in a school that was predominantly white um, when I was in preschool. And I was kind of left off by myself because no one really wanted to hang out with you. We weren't like assimilated uh, or for the culture like it is today. But it was interesting because I guess one day I came home and you know, I changed the tone of my voice. And so, you know, I was asking my dad, I was like, dad, where's mom? And he was like, I, okay, I don't know who child I picked up. But why are you changing your voice? And so, you know, they kind of had to sit me down and basically say, one, we're taking you out of the school. And two, you know, you, you should never feel that you have to assimilate, you know, to be able to fit into a social structure or a social environment. And so that's also something that has stuck with me. And so when you have, you know, people grounding you foundationally to be very thick skinned, very tough, but then also to making sure that you represent from the demographics that make up who you are, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's contributed to me wanting to be a great representation for women, but also for African-Americans as well. And I think that's played out in my career and, and having this drive to always want to be the first to do something great. when it comes to being a woman or being black. And I think those things stick with you as children. But then there are also negative side effects of people who are black or women who didn't have that type of positive force, letting them know that it was okay to be who you are. So I think that's definitely helped to shape who I am. And I think both of those stories kind of can tell you why I ended up the person I am today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's odd that you hear young black women that have aspirations to jump into that world of politics. Were there any other people, any other mentors or coaches early on, maybe not as a kid, but in college or shortly after that helped to guide you? I mean, I definitely think there were influences that helped to catapult my career. Yeah. Um, my first opportunity that I was given in politics as far as on a, a high level, so federal level, um, was given to me by a black guy that was running for Congress. He was state rep at the time. We're actually really good friends to this day. 
And he's actually, you know, now part of the board of our organization that I work for. So our relationship has come full circle um, of support because now we're able to support one another in each other's endeavors. But if it weren't for him, I, I probably would not be where I am today because, you know, he specifically wanted a black woman in the role of assistant finance director for his campaign. Now, many people do not specifically look to put a person of color, especially a woman of color in finance roles in politics, which is why you do not see many black female fundraisers for either, whether it's in campaigns or in the lobbying realm of politics. And many times, I mean, you definitely don't see them as campaign managers. So you either see them as a candidate with not much support or resources or anyone to help them fundraise, which Mm. they still need a fundraiser, or you kind of see them as a staffer. And it's disheartening because it's not to say that those roles don't mean anything because every single role of politics means something. However, if you're not encouraging them to take on different roles, then the idea of where they can see their career go as far as representation comes into play is limited and it's skewed. And so for him to, you know, see that, and I had never done fundraising on campaigns, by the way. So, you know, to be put on a federal level and then in that first year, you know, to help raise like half a million dollars and you're like collecting like $20,000 a day, you know, I just had never seen that side of things. And so it was very interesting. It was very stressful, (laughs) but that, that took a lot of faith in him. So many times, you know, I always let him know if I have any accomplishments that have come after. He's definitely the first person to know because you helped me get to this point. So I kind of owe you that, you know? Right, right. So have you seen more women of color take roles in that campaign fundraising sphere since? Steven, this is going to be really sad to tell you no. Um, So what Um, can be done to kind of encourage that? Oh, there's a lot that can be done. One, so there are programs in place that are supporting women of color in politics, more so becoming candidates. So you have like Higher Heights uh, based out of New York, which supports women of color, specifically black women um, in politics. And then you have Emerge Michigan, Emily's List and Vote Run Lead that support women candidates in general. There's actually no program that I know of of existence in politics that specifically is looking to get women of color in roles, whether it be on campaigns or whether it be uh, in the lobbying realm, opportunities in fundraising. As far as women in Michigan, outside myself, I do know one other fundraiser who has also been very supportive to me in my career. And she is an amazing fundraiser. But outside of us two, can't really name any others that are women of color that, you know, have a successful track of fundraising who've kind of made it to the point where you have a lot of people demanding you to be their fundraiser or consult on their campaign. Right. So it's great that you're a trailblazer, but, you know, it's not even a case that there are hidden figures. There are no figures. I mean, that's something that we definitely want to see change, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because I had a friend ask me about needing a fundraiser recently for a campaign. And sadly, I couldn't give him anyone. And so 
one thing I told him, I was like, you know, it's time for you guys to just take a chance on someone. I was like, someone took a chance on me. So you're going to have to go out there and, and just, you're going to have to seek that potential that you want. Because if there are no programs in place to give these people these opportunities, you have to create those people. Right. So that the opportunities are there. You know, someone created that wheelhouse for me. The other black female fundraiser that I know, someone created the opportunity for her. She wasn't even working in politics. So you have to create these wheelhouses for women of color because there are no wheelhouses for that to be their cultivated talent. So that's, I think, where we're kind of at when it comes to women in politics as far as taking on the less saturated roles. Right. You know, we've seen so many powerful Black women at the top, right, in media and politics that have gotten shown the door, right? Tamron Hall, Melissa Harris-Perry, even issues we're seeing recently with Congresswoman Maxine Waters, right? Anti-Maxine. <laughs> Why do you think there are so many shifts recently to stifle the voice of our Black women in politics? So there's a, a couple of ways that we can address this. One, we can look at it from the point of intersectionality, meaning that with Black women representing both women and the Black community, it's very difficult because they're constantly told to be a representative for both communities where they are also secondarily marginalized. So in the Black community, they're secondarily marginalized because Black men are supposed to be the head honchos in that community. And then you have in the female community, they're secondarily marginalized because white women are supposed to be the head honchos in that category. And so it's very difficult because we were, it's historically embedded for us to never have a voice in either community that we both are supposed to be representing. That's one. I think also two, the reason why you probably see the recent shift, although it's always been there, but the reason why you're probably seeing these women's voices be stifled, I won't say it's because of our our new leadership on the federal level, because they would have done that regardless of who was there. It just was probably a little more difficult to do that under President Obama with Michelle there as well. Right. <laughs> that wasn't really going to fly. But I think we're seeing it because we also are seeing these women want to stop the shenanigans. You know, Tamron Hall and Melissa Harris-Perry, I can definitely say, we're tired of delivering content based on some platform that a white man gave them, uh -huh. you know? And so, and you kind of see the same thing, you know, when you look at white female anchors that are, are placed on, let's say, Fox News. You see that they finally want to have an alternative voice. And if it doesn't fit into the scope of that news outlet, then we're done with you. We've had enough. You've played your role. And so I think a lot of these Black women that are doing political correspondence or who are pundits are probably tired of being the puppet to the master, <laughs> so to speak, where they're not able to really deliver political education. They're just kind of delivering news. And it's news based on the foundation of what someone else has given them. Yeah. And I could see that being difficult. I mean, I definitely would not want to take an opportunity to basically lessen what I feel is vital or imperative for communities to know that are disadvantaged. Yeah. 
And I think that that's kind of what we're seeing here. I think, well, first of all, Congresswoman Maxine Waters has always been this way. She was the same Congresswoman being vocal during the Rodney King beatings as she was today. I think the difference is we have social media and now Mm -hmm. people can just see that she's been the auntie. She always will be the auntie. (laughs) And there have been several others that need to be heralded as well. It's just that, you know, we're so used to heralding the Hillary Clintons or the Nancy Pelosi's or, you know, even Elizabeth Warren that, you know, a lot of the black legislators just get pushed to the back. And so it's nice to see her get her shine as well-deserved and she should not drop her mic until she's ready to. You have to think that this is probably the last good run for an administration like we have today, right? Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on maybe what you think the next decade looks like, right? From when we look at race, gender, and ethnicity and, and the impact of that in the political scene. So I'm going to give it to you from a positive view, and then I'm going to play devil's advocate for that. I'm not going to say a negative view, because I'm going to choose not to be negative, but I'm going to give you the devil's advocate for that. So from a positive view, we do have progress. We do have diverse electeds that were not there before, representing, you know, different race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, you know, different communities that and voices that we did not have prior to that are now able to be the voices for their individual districts, whether that be on the local state or federal level, and can help push policies that maybe someone didn't think about. And the reason I'm going to give that as an example is that a board that I was on the Emerging Leaders Board through a publication called Metro Mode that worked on solutions journalism I mean, this is probably the most diverse group of people that I've ever been in a cluster or cohort with. Mm. And in addition to difference in race, ethnicity and gender, you know, we had, for instance, one person was transgender and I had never, you know, been really, I've never even socialized with someone that was transgender. And I feel like for us to be working on solutions journalism, to have that voice at the table was extremely important because there are things that they would think about that I wouldn't. And the same thing with having someone on our board that was from the Mexican community, and she's a strong voice for the Mexican community. And, you know, we were picking topics to work on the solutions journalism, and she mentioned immigration. I'm going to be honest, I would not think about immigration first. I'm, of course, going to go for things that affect my community or right. the demographic that I represent. Right. So, you know, obviously, I'm going to look at civic engagement and social justice and welfare issues and of course, women's rights, urban sprawl, you know, things that I feel that affect communities. Exactly. And so that is something that's extremely important because it was a wake up call, not a wake up call for me because you know, it's of existence, but until you are in a room that's extremely diverse, Mm -hmm. you don't realize how much you are neglecting other communities by not proactively thinking about, you know, policies that might benefit the growth of their community. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happens every day in politics. (laughs) You know, if you don't have these voices at the table, then of course they're not thinking about them. Why would they? And it's probably subconscious. Some of it is conscious. So that is where I would say the positive is, is that we are having these different voices and leaders emerge, especially after the election. Now, devil's advocate to that would be the fact that we have a lot of voices at the table, but they're misguided. Mm. And I'm going to take it back to a classic film that I like called Schoolhouse Rock. Mm Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and you know how we we had our our good friend Bill, who was just a Bill sitting on Capitol Hill. You know, not having that foundation of how politics worked from the legislative, executive, and judicial branches is extremely imperative. You know, people don't take social studies serious anymore uh, when you look at education, which is a whole other conversation, but. There are a lot of people who actually literally don't know how politics works. And it really came out when people actually had to pay attention to the Electoral College this year <laughs> because we just haven't in, you know, over a decade have to pay attention to that. I mean, not since the Bush-Gore election, which was about, if we're looking back at like 2001, I mean, I was like 11. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, I was paying attention because that was important to me even at that time. And so it's really interesting that we have this time span where different avenues of politics have not really been put in the forefront, which means that, you know, when you have people not learn the voting process until they're 18, that's a lot of time to give people to just start learning. It's like learning a foreign language. Right. And so I find it very, very complex and a little, a little disheartening about where we're going to go in the future. Because if you have misguided or, or I'll say not uneducated, miseducated individuals running for office, that's just as bad as having people who are just horrible run for office. <laughs> so, you know, I, Yes. I'm, I'm very concerned about, about where that's going to go in the future. It's interesting you said that. And I'm thinking about what you, the comments you had made before. I'm an immigrant myself, you know, so there's so much that I've lived in this country since 1993, right? But there's still so much I'm in the dark about having lived here and not quite understanding because there's really no awareness or program to kind of help me, right? Most of it was probably embedded in school. By the time I got here, I went to college. I find it interesting that you have so much immigrants in this country, right, that probably don't know, you know, that have, like me, lived here, their adult lives. You know, what kind of programs are there or what kind of programs can we create to educate that base of people like me, right, about the political system? Because we have a big voice and it continues to grow, right? You have a large portion of population as Hispanics, right? It, when we're talking about a decade out from now that are going to have a voice that, to your point, you know, if, if we don't educate um, that base, could be harmful playing devil's advocate. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I would love to see more done in that regard. You know, like there's so mm -hmm. much that I'm learning by way of a seven-year-old kid, <laughs> you know, right now that I just never knew before. Um, and there's just, you know, it's a lack of awareness on that side. And I'm partly to blame. No, you know, well, I, I definitely think that there's room to grow. I don't think that you're necessarily to blame because you, you know, you moved to a country that systematically did not necessarily want certain populations to understand politics. Mm. So it really was never created for you to understand mm -hmm. whether that's immigrants, minorities or the like. Our political system is definitely socially constructed to be advantageous to a certain demographic, which is why a lot of times you see that people who have chosen to be Republican, as far as partisanship goes, it's it's not always really due to being a staunch conservative, so to speak. It's more so due to 
we understand policy and business and we're going to vote this way because it's the more educated way to vote. Right. You know, and I've engaged with both from working on all three levels as well as working within the lobbying realm. You know, you are you're forced to be able to understand where both Democrats and Republicans are coming from right. and from getting to know both parties. I would say that, yes, Republicans definitely explain why they vote within their party a lot differently than a Democrat would explain that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when we look at this past election, I think partisanship played out a lot. I think that Republicans saw opportunity to capitalize on the fact that Democrats were lost and who they wanted to support and, and for many different reasons. And they were able to leverage that for their party's sake. Although both parties have a, a huge disadvantage because both need a lot of growth to connect with millennial voters, Republicans were able to just pull together, you know, a roadmap better for success for their party than we were necessarily able to do. Does that mean that one is better than the other? Absolutely not. But one just outsmarted the other. I think, and I think we've seen this story play out time and time again, where the same party was able to be advantageous to themselves. And I, I do think that it's because they look at their party more like a business and we kind of look at it as that's, that's exactly it as, as, a, as a social protest. As, you know, voting a, is not a social protest yeah. <laughs> as a marketer, you know, and I, I'm not going to mm -hmm. tell you that by any means. I'm happy with the outcome of this last election. But as a marketer, I looked at this thing and saw someone as a businessman who understood how to look at a market and look at a pain point and push that agenda. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what I saw Trump able to accomplish. So I don't know if there was a political roadmap as much as just that businessman in him saw a particular demographic that had a pain point and he just like went for it. And the marketer in him saw an opportunity that I, I think no one else politically was making sense of. They're all looking at it from that vantage point and couldn't make sense of why he was running over the race like he did. Well, you know what? You know, politics is probably one of the most traditional industries that is still around. You know, we still knock doors, which is pretty old school. We still do mailings, which is pretty old school at this point. Um, we still do phone banking, which is definitely pretty old school at this point. Um, we, we take a lot of old school methods to reaching voters and constituent bases. Um, and we use a lot of old school rhetoric and language as well. And what he did was he looked at this election similarly to the way that President Barack Obama looked at the election. And I'm going to, I'm going to, to put that a lot of people do not see how he basically mimicked him just in a more, I mean, it could be in a more ignorant way, but he still mimicked his exact platform. What he did was 
you know, President Barack Obama, who is beyond a genius and, and pretty much the GOAT when it comes to politics in my eyes. What he did back in 08, which was my first time voting, by the way, he saw that there were demographics that were growing but not being heard. Mm -hmm. So what he did was he made sure that he built his election off of tapping into those demographics. Mm -hmm. He used consultants for the first time. A lot of people were not utilizing consultants in the way that he did. He utilized branding Mm -hmm. in a way that no one had ever seen before. Yeah. Yeah, And it was, that's the exact same thing that this current president, because I, you know, I never say the name, but that's the same thing that the current president did as well. He yes. tapped into demographics that were growing, but not heard. And then he tapped into a brand. And at the end of the day, if you really look at the direction of where the country is going in, both presidents used the direction that the country is going in, and that's branding and technology. Yeah. Everywhere you look, everyone's getting into branding or technology. It's growing industries, and we can't look at politics the way we did in the 70s, exactly. 80s, and 90s because we were in different industries. Like, yeah. you can't, we were a completely different society. And so, When you are at that time more so in corporate industries or automotive industries, and now today you're in tech industries, PR industries, branding, and it's two completely different environments. And it's very difficult when you have career politicians from three eras ago try to be relevant today. Mm, Technically, you know, President Obama was a new school, a modern version of a politician, and technically so is the current one we have. I mean, if we really want to look at it, you mm-hmm. know, which is why Romney didn't win, which is why Clinton didn't win, <laughs> which yeah. is why McCain didn't win, because they were career politicians using old school methods. At the end of the day, this industry is still a business, whether we want it to be or not. But if it wasn't, then I wouldn't be taking home a paycheck every other week. So, you know, it, it still needs innovation. And I think there again, that's the positive is that we have a bunch of millennials who want to see change and innovation happen in all areas of professionalism. But then the negative is that they just don't understand the foundation of these doctrines and policies that were created before them. So, so Lauren. That brings me to this, right? You are an innovator, a young 27-year-old. We talked about this before. You've done, you've accomplished so much, right? And you're a co-founder today of YAB, Young, Ambitious, and Beautiful, right? But, yes. you know, we're talking about this and I'm, I'm wondering, so you're helping young Black women look at entrepreneurship, but do you see a path to help young Black women pursue a path in politics as well? There's definitely a way to merge the two. Mm. You know, I always say that politics and and YAB for me are, are the most beautiful blended union of a marriage that I, I could have ever been blessed to have in my life. So you're working on um, a mixtape? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the remix is already out. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I just, I say that to say... From me working from from the fundraising side of politics, I see how business 
contributes to the political realm. You mm-hmm. know, when you're working with donors and they all work for the top businesses or they own the top businesses, right. you know, you already see how it plays a role. And from seeing that scope of things, I also see how many donors I work with that are not women of color. Mm. And that bothers me. So that means that I'm also not only am I not seeing women in politics, but I'm also not seeing them in business when I still need them for politics. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And so that is the the marriage. I'm trying to get people to understand right. why I chose to have the two marry one another. Right. Right. Because there's a key link there that a lot of people are not seeing. They keep thinking that both are separate. And, you know, I think it's so funny when I do a publication feature, do a podcast, and, like, people want to ask me about each separately. But they really complement one another because it's interesting, you know, when President Barack Obama was in office, a lot of his initiatives pushed for helping women in business, especially those that own small businesses. And he had tons of programs and initiatives that were pushing that effort, especially around 2014. He really was pushing that out under the White House. And there can be laws, policies, and initiatives from government that can support women in business. For instance, on the federal level, as well as on the state level, there are several electeds that are, of course, put on committees. You know, I don't know if many people know that, but just to break that down, I mean, a lot of times you're assigned your committees, but of course you can kind of leverage for the committees that you want. And on both levels of government, there are committees that focus on business and entrepreneurship. And so when you don't have the representation there to even know that you can receive the resources or support on that level, I'm talking millions to put towards programs and funding for mm-hmm. women in business, how do you expect it to grow? How? Mm-hmm. How? How do you expect to get the money? And so it really, really irks my soul that like people do not see how all of this intertwines with one another. And and when you ask like how can I build that into a, a long term career in the future, you know, I feel that it's almost my duty but more so just imperative that, you know, I use my knowledge and my voice to make sure that women, especially women of color, are aware of these opportunities. So it's funny that you asked the question about Tamara Hall, Melissa Harris Perry, because long term, I do want to do political correspondence, but I want to do it not from a broadcast journalism perspective, because mm-hmm. that is not what I majored in. Um, that was not my focus during my education both undergraduate and graduate level, it was policy. And you need people in the political media, not the general media, but the, I would say the more so the political media that have worked on every level of government or worked heavily within policy or even if they worked on a specific level of government and had you know a role as chief of staff or as a policy advisor or director to be in these forums where they can actually educate people on what's going on. Because, I mean, when are we going to get to the day where we're actually going to educate people on a ballot initiative before they get to the ballot box to vote on it? You know, when are we going to get to the day where we have forums on partnering with Google or with Microsoft and making sure that women of color receive the funding funneled through the federal level or the state level. You know, those opportunities are there. 
It's just that no one is connecting the dots to be that pipeline to make sure that people have these resources and opportunity. And that's because they don't know that it exists or that it's an op- a chance to do that. And so that is ultimately where I would like to see my career go and grow. And I think both my career in politics as well as, you know, working with YAB is going to help that come to fruition. So that was my long way around that. Yeah, no, 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 that's cool. That's cool. What are some of the bigger challenges you think standing in your way right now for YAB to be able to thrive with some of what you just mentioned? I'm honestly going to say, and I feel like my co-founders would say the same thing, that there really have been no challenges. And the reason we're, I would say that is because we honestly do this from a genuine point of view. So one, we're not trying to make money mm-hmm. off of YAB. It's genuinely YB because we want to see. And YAB is a nonprofit, yes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So what we've done for our event series is we've charged exactly one dollar which everyone thinks is so weird when they actually go to register for events. <laughs> like I'm paying a dollar with my car. That's so weird. But we've charged exactly $1, um, sometimes $5 for a special events. But we charge that amount because every dollar is to go to our scholarship. So that way we can support women of color who um, are pursuing their education, specifically wanting to a focus on a career in business or somewhere in that scope. And so that's kind of really the only monetary income that comes in. I um, mean, it all, 100% of it goes to the scholarship. So, so why not you know. charge 20 or 50? I mean, like, especially so, in some of these urban cities that you're in where probably some of your attendees to these events would probably still feel comfortable paying it. So, yes and no. So this is the thing that people don't understand about necessarily branding, Mm -hmm. because we're also in a competitive market these Mm -hmm. days where everyone's doing the same thing. So it's like, come to my event for $25. We're going to network. We're going to sip and shop or whatever the case may be. Come to my empowerment conference for $50. We're all going to talk about being inspired and then walk away and set some goals. And all of these things are great. They are awesome. But the most success comes from picking your own lane. And it's interesting because our very first event series that we did, the venue capacity was 250 people. And we definitely pushed it to the max where it could have been a fire hazard with 250 people. Mm -hmm. And this is 250 women on a Friday night, some in heels. I mean, all of them standing (laughs) up just to listen to these panelists that we have specifically picked out. And a lot of people are like, well, why don't you charge? Why don't you try to make money off of it or a profit? Because it's really not about that. What they're going to get from attending is much greater. Mm -hmm. And So in this past year of 2016, we had four quarterly events and we made over a thousand dollars, which means that if we had 250 people and we charged a dollar, then we made $250 per event that could go towards a scholarship. And so all of it goes towards the book scholarship for a senior in high school, a freshman in college. And so that being said, it's strategic more so to 
to not make it about money. I just hate when people are like making it about, you know, charging $20 here, $30 here, just because Jane Doe around the corner just did the same thing. Right. We really want it to be about, I actually did not want to charge at first until I realized that we could be supporting our scholarship in mm. such ways. Um, I was just like, we can just get a grant and just fund it that way. But it truly makes it more about the message and the mission when you do it from that type of scope, you know, because I would rather work harder to get 250 attendees and have a dollar per attendee than have 25 people there. And you charge $25. Right. So it's more about, it, it has to be about the message and the mission as well. And so I think that's, you know, working with my co-founders and us continuously supporting that mission of lifting as we climb has definitely been more beneficial or satisfactory than, than that charging that larger amount. Well, keep pushing. <laughs> Thank you. So we're losing time with you here. And I could probably keep talking to you for a good half or more. But I wanted oh, to flattered. ask uh, a couple <laughs> last questions here. You know, as a young millennial trailblazer, what are some books that you've found yourself reading that have given you wisdom and inspiration to take some of the action that you find yourself taking right now? So I love this question because I'm a little more old school when it comes to books. I'm very new school when it comes to documentaries. And I could name a plethora of documentaries that have mm. that have inspired me. Um, I have like a list of over 100 that wow. I keep. Where you can see um, documentaries. It's a combination, mainly Netflix. Netflix. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm a Netflix <laughs> documentary also, junkie too. But I also love Independent Lens on PBS. I nice. just love PBS. I loved it as a child. Yeah. I fell back in love with it as an adult. Which I actually, I just saw one on National Geo, was it National Geographic? That was mm-hmm. LA 92, revisiting the LA riots. Ah. And I had already watched a documentary on the LA riots. So sometimes I'll watch a documentary on the same subject to get two different perspectives. Different yeah. But for books, I like a lot of the books that I read in my adolescent years. Mm. One of my favorites of all time is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Just this idea of looking at society from a different lens on how we think by choosing to burn books was just so interesting to me. And it was way ahead of its time. So completely shout out to that book. Um, I'm also a huge Toni Morrison fan, Mm. probably to the day I die. Um, I've read, I mean, the list is long. Sula, The Bluest Eye. Song of Solomon is my favorite. Her characters are so eccentric. And the reason that I like her books or why they inspire me is because she does not give you the stereotypical Black person. So you actually have to think of them almost as colorless because Granted, they're set in these environments or with these plots that, you know, put them in the realm of, okay, I know they're black because like I've I've heard that person before. I can visualize that town or, Mm -hmm. you know, I know what they look like. But the way that they think out of the box, they almost dream is really interesting. And I really, really, really love her books. I would have to say my other I read in college that I love to this day that I can still reference. And that's Brave New World. And that was actually about how futurism and technology would, 
eventually run society, which I think is really interesting because mm-hmm. that's exactly what's going to it's happen. Yeah. And it's happened before when we moved into the industrial revolution and a lot of people lost jobs. I think that's going to happen again, um, which should be interesting because it's kind of like if you aren't working with tech, you might be be lost there. And then I would have to say other books that I love. Um, I actually, a recent one was the author of Brown is the New White. And I was at a conference for work recently. And he actually was one of our, our guest speakers to wow. talk about the new democracy. Dee Phillips is the author. And um, we actually got a chance to speak one-on-one. So it was really interesting. It talks about how, you know, there's a demographic revolution and how these demographics of minorities pretty much outweigh white demographics of voters, but yet yeah. we're not messaging to them. So I think that's extremely relevant. Yeah. People really need to read it if they want to, you know, know how to to win in 2020 might want to suggest that right. Um, right. To, to some, uh, some campaign managers there. <laughs> but otherwise I would say those are probably my top books. I mean, the list could go on, but if I can't give it to you now off the top of my head, it must've not been that memorable. So right. those are the ones I can actually reference. <laughs> love it. Love it. As we get to, to close off this conversation, I'd love to have you share one action or trailblazers should take this week to help them blaze your trail? I would say that one action that trailblazers should take this week is discuss your vision with yourself. You know, everyone may not be a spiritual person. I am. So I discuss my visions with God so it can be manifested into a reality. But if that is not your choice, then discuss it with yourself. And when you're saying it out loud, explain it to yourself as if you were pitching this idea to yourself, Mm -hmm. to fund yourself. And I think that if some future trailblazers do that, they might actually see actionary items come from their thoughts. Love it. Lauren, thank you so very much. I appreciate having you on. Enjoy this conversation. You opened my eyes up a bit on a couple of your points made, and I'm excited to see where life takes you. I feel like you're going to, as you have done so well before, be creating a lot more firsts as a young black woman so excited to see what's next for you oh thank you so much for having me steven i feel like you've said you know such amazing things but i have to say that back to you you know i heard about your podcast from actually listening to it first so you keep blazing trails with with the awesome things you're doing with the podcast and i just thank you so much for having me on and let me share my story thank you lauren Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Trailblazers podcast. I'll be posting links to all of today's book recommendations and links mentioned on our show notes page at tdpod.com. If today was your first time listening to the Trailblazers podcast, I just want to extend a warm Trailblazers welcome to you. We're so happy to have you here and we encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and browse through some of our past episodes to keep the knowledge flowing. If you're a fan of the podcast and today's content, and you're maybe already subscribed to the podcast, please continue to share and invite your friends, your family, your colleagues to listen to an episode that you think might impact them most. 
we believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories will be moved to make significant changes that will have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday by about 5 a.m. Eastern. Trailblazers, jump off this podcast today. Go find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. Cheers. Cheers.